Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jim Jansen. I am the director of the Office of Evangelization and Catechesis for the Archdiocese of Omaha, and you are listening to the EquipCast, uh, a service of the Archdiocese of Omaha, here to equip you for mission. My co-host, Father Jeff Lorig, is not here. He's on vacation, enjoying uh, a great time out on the motorcycle. So I have a special guest with me today, and I will introduce uh, her in a moment here. But if you like what you hear today, and you would like to continue to hear from us, please subscribe to the podcast. Just search for EquipCast, one word, on your preferred podcasting platform. We're on all of them, Apple, Stitcher, Google. You can continue the conversation because we'd like to hear from you by subscribing at our blog at equip.archomaha.org. You'll find all the resources, show notes, links, handouts, all the cool stuff that we mentioned today, as well as a whole host of other articles and resources, all the archives of the show here. And you can change the conversation. You can influence our thoughts here at the Archdiocese by commenting or replying to our emails. We would love to hear your thoughts. So please go on to equip.archomaha.org. You can subscribe to the blog and then you'll get updates on the podcast and uh, so much more. So today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the change of age That is not a birthday reference to Archbishop Lucas. His birthday is today, Friday, June 12th. So we'll put the address at the end to send lavish gifts and uh, cards to our good shepherd, Archbishop Lucas. But joining me today to talk about a change of age is my coworker, Jen Mosier. Welcome, Jen. Hey, Jim. All right, Jen, what do you do here? So I am the coordinator of leadership formation. That means that one of my primary responsibilities is to coordinate the mentorship program for lay leaders, which is a two-year process of equipping lay leaders across the archdiocese for evangelization. And I also get to work with a lot of pastors, helping to come alongside them and help them engage in evangelization more effectively. Awesome. Okay, so we're talking about a change of age, and we're not referencing Archbishop Lucas's birthday. What what are we ta- what are we talking about today? Yeah. So what we're talking about is the fact that culturally we're in a moment where we're shifting from an era where Christianity has kind of been the dominant mm-hmm. cultural vision to an age that that's no longer the case. And so we're going to be taking a look at some church history a little bit to understand this moment that we're in. Oh, fun! I can I can tell a, bu- a bunch of people are like you know grabbing for their grabbing for their caffeine now. Uh, I actually think this is going to be an amazing uh, conversation as we kind of prepped and and thought about this before. Maybe I'll, I'll tee it up here for us with a, a quote from uh, Pope Francis. He said, "We are not living through an age of change." He said, "We're living through." A change of the ages. That was kind of our inspiration for this because you know some of us, so much of us now feel the intensity of the change that is happening in our lives. I mean, right to say we felt that before COVID-19 and now all of a sudden, you know, wearing masks is cool and it's threatening to not wear a mask. And I mean, just the, all of the, all of the changes that we're, we're living through, through now, he really puts things in perspective historically saying that we're, we're living through a change of the ages. Can you just, Jen, set the context for us here? Mm-hmm. What are we talking about? Why this matters to just ordinary missionary disciples here in, here in the Archdiocese of Omaha? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and I think when we talk about looking back at church history, you don't have to know all of the details in order to, to be able to appreciate the fact that, that we have a lot to learn from our past. And uh, for me personally, mm. I think for those who are familiar with the Gallup Strengths Finder, context is one of my strengths. And, and basically what that means is that in order for me to understand the present moment and in order for me to know how mm. to look forward to the future and how we should move forward, I need to understand the past. That understanding the past actually gives us important clues to knowing where we're at and where we want to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a deeply Catholic instinct. So what are we talking about with the past today? This change of age that Pope Francis talks about? Yeah, I think as we look just kind of broadly over the history of the church, we can kind of distinguish first what we would call an apostolic age, 
the time of the apostles up until mm-hmm. kind of the legalization of Christianity, when what really happened is Christianity became accepted at a broader cultural level. So Ooh, that's Constantine, right? It is. Yeah. Fourth century. Yeah. History, shout out. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And so when Christianity was legalized and then uh, a few years after Constantine, when it became actually the, the religion of the empire, mm-hmm. suddenly everybody wanted to be Christian because you wanted to be in with the emperor, right? Mm-hmm. And we really shifted at that point into what we would call a Christendom age. Okay. So tell me, what is it? What is a Christendom age like mm-hmm. like what is it what's, what's the experience of that what's the characteristics yeah yeah so a, a christendom age is really where christianity is the dominant cultural vision by which everything is evaluated and you start to see mm-hmm. it embodied in kind of cultural institutions in art in literature in the way that that society operates so, so you really see that, you know, after you get into the 400s up until very recently, our society is really dominated by a vision where Christianity is embedded in our laws, mm-hmm. um, in our moral code, in art, in, in literature, in just kind of all of these standing institutions in the church. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Are you saying that in an age of Christendom, everybody everybody was Christian or everybody kind of like embraced the the Christian vision and the Christian moral code? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's faithful to Christianity all of the time. But what it does mean, I think, is that just generally Christian ideals and values have kind of taken hold and that that's how we evaluate and the worldview through which we kind of see things. Okay. Okay, so I think about like right World War Two, you know, the greatest generation at that time, even even the deep ideological conflicts of the Second World War, people are seeing those things through a, a Christian lens, even if they're not following the teachings of Christ, that's what's shaping their mind, right? I mean, even the most, you know, scoundrel of your, your grandfather's battalion probably would have claimed to be Christian, right? Right. E- even if his conduct didn't didn't say that. Yeah. And I think it's a simple thing. You could even just look at, you know, how many people had at least familiarity with the Bible? You sure. know, and all the kind of cultural allusions that we've had to biblical stories, you know, David and Goliath, and, right. and just all sorts of, of ways that you could see just kind of this Christian vision embodied in the way that we we lived. Okay. Now, so not to steal your thunder, but... Sounds like Pope Francis is making the case, and you're gonna you're gonna pile on and, and say the same thing that that's no longer true, is it? Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that we're we're all starting to feel it and to see it, maybe to varying degrees, but definitely, I think we're shifting and have been throughout the last certainly the the twentieth century. I think we started mm-hmm. started to see a lot of those shifts, but even a little bit earlier, if you go back and really study history a little more in depth, we've been moving into a time where we're no longer in an age of Christendom. We're really kind of moving into a new apostolic era. Right. As soon as, you know, when you were starting, as we were just doing the intro here, when you were talking, you said, you know, a time when the emperor became Christian, everybody wanted to be Christian because it was cool. And I, I mean, I almost laughed out loud because that, that feels so foreign to, to my mm-hmm. experience. It is anything but cool to be Christian in, you know, 20th, 21st century America. So I think intuitively know this, why does this matter? Like, how does this, how does this change anything about, you know, the way we live as Christians and and disciples, the ministries that we run? Like, what's at stake? Like, what's the point of our conversation today? Yeah, I think it really comes down to, if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel and accomplishing the mission of the church to make disciples in our time, we have to understand the strategies that are going to be effective to do that. And and if we continue to operate as if we're living in a culture that's upholding Christian principles mm. and we choose strategies that assume that, then we're going to fail miserably. Mm. Yeah. Faithful, faithful hearts, no fruit. Right. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk a little bit like, you know, where are we now? Pope Francis is talking about this kind of change, change of the age. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, both of us were, we had the chance to read a wonderful article, you know, came out of First Things. We'll put that in the show notes, a great article that 
literally the title is, right? From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, the Pastoral Strategies. Uh, great article, maybe a little little heady sometimes, and I know we're going to reference a, a couple of other things. That article was written way before COVID-19, and it was making the case that there was this, you know, that that we were no longer living in a, in a Christendom culture, that that many people for whatever Christian veneer or habits they might have, whatever label they might give themselves, oh yeah, I'm Catholic, never mind, I haven't been to Mass in 30 years, but oh yeah, I'm good. That that was before COVID-19, when literally everyone in the world stopped going to Mass. And now we're beginning to live in this fallout where we're starting to recognize as things are opening back up, people aren't coming back. And I think there's a temptation for us to think that, you know, this is caused by COVID-19 when I think this article and others of us would say, no, it's actually been this way for quite some time. This uh, COVID-19 and the, you know, universal, I guess, mass didn't cease, but the universal removal of the obligation, it only revealed what was, what was already there, mm-hmm. that we were no longer a Christian society. Yeah. Well, and I think what's so important to point out is that this is something Pope John Paul II recognized almost 40 years ago when he called Mm. for a new evangelization. Um, And so the church has been kind of proclaiming this for quite some time, even I think going back to Vatican II. Why was Vatican II called? Because John Twenty-Third had this intuition that we needed to learn how to engage the modern world in a different way. Right. Well, and that's all you can call it. You can only call it intuition because the data was great. I mean, now and for the last 20 or 30 years, you can look at the decline in mass attendance across every generation, right? You can look at all sorts of other you know numbers, sacramental practice, so on and so forth. At the time when the Second Vatican Council is called, Seminaries are full, everything's booming, seemingly perfect and hunky-dory. It's an interesting thing, Jen, you said at the the beginning of the the podcast that we're kind of now transitioning back to to a new apostolic era. What what are some of the things that are the same and what's different about this, this maybe, if we are transitioning again to a new age, an apostolic age, what's the same and what's different? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe just kind of going back to the first apostolic time um, and looking at what was kind of culturally, <laughs> what were the characteristics of that, uh, and what was going on. You know, you think of the the first apostles coming fresh off of, of their time with Jesus and going out into a culture that was very hostile to them. Mm-hmm. Sec- the secular culture was very hostile to Christian principles. And certainly there were many Jews that rejected the Christian message and mm-hmm. the message that Jesus was the Messiah. So what you see is this intense apostolic activity that is is so much of it is spread through personal witness and holiness of life mm. and this dynamic proclamation of the gospel. And you also just notice that whatever the vocation of the early Christians, there was an emphasis on lay holiness mm-hmm. and lay mission, that not just the apostles, not just the priests, not just the bishops, but all Christians were called to this dynamic witness of the Christian way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you talk about that. I feel like you know, the early Christian, I mean, the early, right, the early apostles, they expected rejection and hostility from their culture. And I think there's a degree to which we're starting to expect that. But I would say for, for myself, I often feel, I still feel a little surprised and a little betrayed when I find, you know, cherished institutions, the Boy Scouts, my, you know, my own country, whatever, like things that I always expected to be embodying Christian a Christian vision and values, no longer doing so. I still I find myself surprised and somewhat betrayed by that. And then there's something in common there, but there is a as we live in this time, it's a little bit disorienting. It's it's disorienting to find ourselves in relationship with people who would claim the label Christian or Catholic, but wouldn't wouldn't really have any sort of kind of thought or uh, pattern of living that would that would indicate that, and that's I mean it's kind of a disorienting thing as you're living in this like this this age of transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think that there's 
you know, what we saw in the first apostolic age and what we're going to see more and more in our time is that there's going to be a high cost to discipleship, mm. that some of the benefits that come have come in the past from being Christian are no longer going to be there for us as we move forward. Okay, so let's, if we're, we should probably talk about some strategies for beginning to live in an, in an apostolic age. How do we do that well? But just before we do that, like, what's the, what are some ways that we still operate as if we're living in Christendom? Mm-hmm. So if we can take for granted that we are in a, a change of the age and, and we're returning to a, it's kind of a new apostolic era, what, what are some of the ways that we, we operate as that we're still in Christendom? Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at some of the characteristics of Christendom, I think that'll help us kind of answer that question. Yeah. Um, you know, when the broader cultural uh, worldview is supportive of Christianity, what the church really needs to do is is different. The primary orientation tends to be maintenance. Mm. That we're kind of maintaining the things that we're doing because it seems to be working, you know, mm. culturally, the the worldview is in our favor and there's there's not the same challenge. So it's a lot easier to just kind of go with the flow because the culture is moving that same direction. Mm. So when you say maintenance, you're not you're not saying maintenance as as though it were a dirty word. You're saying like that's an appropriate pastoral strategy when the culture is pulling in the same direction that you are. Right, exactly. Very much so. Yeah, because you what you see is that there's space and there's room for these great cultural achievements. You know, you think mm-hmm. of um, some of the art of, uh, you know, the Renaissance period. Mm. There was space for Michelangelo and Raphael to well, to create and funding. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, so yeah, huge support. I mean, there was yeah you know, competition amongst artists for who's going to get the the biggest benefactors. Right. Right. And I think you see this, obviously, with just kind of the moral worldview as well. Mm-hmm. And some of the great achievements of law and the, the space that was made for eventually, I think we would say democracy, you know, coming out of a worldview of, of the basic human dignity of, of everyone. Now, that wasn't certainly practiced equally mm-hmm. everywhere and, and with maybe the, the same vision that would be fully faithful to the gospel. But there was space for those things to happen. Mm-hmm. And so the church really didn't have a need to call the broader cultural institutions to to conversion in the same way. Well, it's interesting that you you say that because there was the church has never ceased to call people to conversion, but it's different. There there are drawbacks to a Christian age. Talk a little bit about that because I think yeah. the way we're talking about it right now, it makes it seem like I want a time machine and I want to go back there. What are the challenges of of living in an age of Christendom? Yeah, for sure, there definitely are some. I think that the the major temptation in a Christendom age is that it's easy to be lukewarm, mm. and again, just go with the flow. Um, because everything seems to be moving our way. Mm. And so in that situation, what can happen is that the church becomes a little worldly. And we get a little, <gasps> I know, right? And we get a little focused on just the reality of, you know, the benefits that can come from mm-hmm. living in this world. Sure, because you're living in a time where it's actually cool to be a priest right. or a bishop or right. a faithful a faithful Christian. right. And I think that what also tends to happen is that you get this um, distinction between those who are kind of like super holy, (laughs) Mm. uh, you know, priests, religious, and the rest of the people who, again, just are kind of going along for the ride. And so there tends to be a lessening of an expectation of holiness among the laity. And missionary work tends to be, you know, often those faraway lands where people have never heard of the gospel before. And we're not necessarily... Yeah, it's this extreme calling, rare manifestation, only a chosen select few, which is in striking contest, contrast to where we find ourselves right now, where everybody is actually called to be a missionary. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about, about that, because you, you alluded to it earlier how, you know, the Second Vatican Council really began a call that at the time seemed maybe odd, but only now in retrospect as we're starting to really experience viscerally and, and see around us the almost overnight rapid decline of Christian values and institutions. I think you made the case as we were talking earlier that the Second Vatican Council actually provided the antidote for that before we even knew we were sick. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I certainly don't want to scandalize anybody by saying this, but I have this conviction that the real vocations crisis is actually the crisis of the laity. Um, Amen. I know. Well, I don't know that everyone would say that because I, I, I don't want to downplay the fact that we we do need priests and we do need religious and that we need to pray and work for that. You know, my brother is a priest. I certainly appreciate that vocation. Very grateful because without priests, we don't have the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And yet I think the experience of most of our priests is that they're pulling the weight totally by themselves. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes the expectations on them to be everything to everyone can be crushing. Mm. And, and so I think that what Vatican II was recognizing and really calling for was, no, we, we need to understand that every person has a vocation to holiness. Mm. Every person has a vocation to mission. And that that's going to look different depending on your particular vocation, you know, where our priests are really called to equip the laity equip mm. the saints for the work uh, of ministry. We as lay people are the ones who are supposed to be on the front lines of evangelization, you know, in the workplace, mm-hmm. helping to transform the secular world. We're the only ones who have access to our neighbors, to our coworkers, the boardroom, the operating room. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that is just going to be really more and more key as we shift from a, a Christendom age into more of a second a new apostolic age, that the vocation of the laity is going to have to become more of a central focus. And and I'm also convinced that if it does, we will have vocations to the priesthood and religious life. Right. Well, I'm, I'm reminded that maybe slightly apocryphal story of John the 23rd's mother, you know, it's like shortly after his election, they're I don't know, having a cappuccino in the Vatican and they're, they're talking and he's, you know, he's just little preoccupied with his now signet ring. And, you know, in the conversation, she points out to him that like this ring, right, her wedding ring came first. That I don't know very many priests that don't come first from the love of two faithful lay people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Jen, let's, before we jump into strategies here, I just, I love just to raise, again, the stakes of this. I think all of this historical context, I feel like as Catholics, we have this deep intuition that we know that history matters and that we want to honor it. And I think that sometimes manifests itself in this preoccupation or this trap to kind of like go back to the perfect Christian society. And for some of us, right, that's going to be, you know, 1940s rural Nebraska. I'm thinking Cedar County. That's where my roots are, right? So some of us think that. Some of us think, depending on your taste in music, you're thinking like, you know, 18th century Italy. And I think what we're saying here is the church has always been faithful and beautiful, and can thrive in any cultural context, right? A, a Christendom context or an apostolic context. But the way we conduct ourselves is very different depending on the cultural context we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. You know, that a Christendom culture, actually there's some pitfalls there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you were talking about how the, you know, there's this temptation towards laxity and mm-hmm. that totally fits. All of the, the, the great saints of a Christendom age they're, they're all railing against laxity in people and, and the church's temptation to become, uh, well, not temptation, the, the church having become worldly. And that's a little different than where we're at now, where it seems like the call as we're, as we're shifting, it's like the church and her leaders, I think John Paul II and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, it feels like it's a little bit, it's a call to kind of wake up and to engage in the mission. It's like we're really being called to be apostolic in a new way. Yeah. And I would maybe just add too, Jim, if if we're tempted to go back and idealize a certain age, probably that's because we're not living in it and we don't see the pitfalls and the difficulties. I just am reminded because I have a mind that really appreciates history, the Protestant Reformation (laughs) was a push against certain things that that Martin Luther, as it started Mm. off, was seeing that did need to be addressed in sure. the Catholic Church, you know? And so you can go back and read, for example, Geoffrey Chaucer and some of his stories mm-hmm. in the Canterbury Tales. Like, you you see that there's corruption. You see that there's a worldliness and a lukewarmness. So I think that it's important that we, we not idealize in a way that also blinds us to 
some of the things that really were there. Right. Well, and I think the, I mean, the, the danger of that is if we imagine a certain age of or cultural embodiment of Christianity, right, Italian or whatever, you know, like if we imagine that to be the perfect embodiment of Christian culture, we're going to fail to live in the culture that we've been handed. Right. And our pastoral strategies aren't going to fit and be fruitful. So let's talk a little bit. But like, how do we remedy that? You know, there's if there's no such thing as a perfect Christian society. And if we have been handed, called now to this time and place to a change of the age, to a new apostolic age, what's our proposal here? How do we begin to live in this? Yeah. And you just kind of said it, but I want to make sure we don't miss it. I think we have to deliberately choose to embrace the time we're in. Mm. You know, we have to deliberately choose not to live in the past, (laughs) to accept that this is where the Lord's put us and that the challenges that that we may be facing are his will for us Mm -hmm. in this moment, that he has put us here at a particular moment with particular gifts, with all of the grace that we need to respond faithfully. And so kind of this maybe misplaced sorrow that we can have Mm -hmm. and that we can sometimes wrestle with around the fact that it's not easier. I think we really have to to prayerfully take that to the Lord so that we can look forward with an appropriate healthy resolution to respond to to the moment that we we've been given. Yeah, my mind is drawn <laughs> to the right to that that great scene in in Lord of the Rings where you know Frodo says I, I wish the ring had never come to me. And he might as well be saying it's like I wish I was living in an age of Christendom because it's hard, right? I mean, we all want to kind of create you know recreate the Shire, we want to go back to a place that's safe and comfortable when, you know, we weren't mocked or dismissed because we're a Christian. And yet there's a grace given to us in in the moment. Okay, so strategy number one, expect it. What else? What's what else can we do concretely to begin to to live uh, fruitfully in an apostolic age? Yeah. Well, I think that it's important to recognize that one of the temptations in an apostolic age is to become sectarian <laughs> and and perhaps isolate ourselves from spaces within the culture where we no longer feel safe. <laughs> okay, so there's, there's dark sides to, mm-hmm. to an apostolic age. Let's talk about, we know there's a temptation to laxity in a Christian age. What's the, what's the temptation? Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by sectarianism? Yeah, yeah. I think that the temptation is as we see just more broadly, <laughs> you know, kind of a cultural malaise setting in where the moral life (laughs) is maybe falling away. Mm. People aren't embracing the teaching of the church, not just morals, but also doctrinally. Like there's, there tends to be a rejection of all of the truths of Christianity. I think especially as we are in this second apostolic age, people, the culture has accepted Christianity and now we're rejecting it. That's new. That didn't happen the first time around. Right. You know, when St. Paul and companions go out, these early missionaries to preach the gospel, they were certainly encountering ignorance and some degree of hostility, but it was a little bit like trying to win the heart of a maiden versus trying to win back a bitter ex-wife. That's like, we, we, we live in a culture that has rejected Christianity, been there, done that. No, I've been burned. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a little bit, it feels a little bit more challenging. It does. Yeah. No, and I think that definitely there's, as we look at how do we engage the world uh, or how do we live in the world and not be of the world, I think that there's three kind of postures we can have with regard to, to the culture. And, and this is something that Father James Mallon, who's the author of Divine Renovation, he just wrote a new book called mm-hmm. uh, Divine Renovation Beyond the Parish. He talks about this, these kind of three different postures. And the first is accommodation, that we can kind of just give in to whatever secular values are, are mm-hmm. holding sway in the current situation. And that the church can kind of take a look at, gosh, the culture is going a different way. We kind of, we really need to kind of stay (laughs) relevant. (laughs) Let's get with, yeah, let's be relevant. Let's get with the times. Right, right. Yep. So that's one posture that we can take. The second is kind of what we were just speaking to is isolation, Mm. that we we close ourselves off and, and we kind of just stay in this little bubble that's comfortable with all the other committed Christians who believe and think and practice the same way that we do. Right. You're welcome to be one of us. Here's where we meet. Come come to us. And as long as you learn the language and our gestures, you're welcome to be part of the club. Right. 
Right. And I think that that's driven. In some ways, there's some good intentions behind that, that we want to preserve what's good. But there's also tends to be a fear that we're going to be completely corrupted by whatever those influences are and lose what is distinctively ours. Again, very understandable. And I think we all wrestle with that in very personal ways. Well, there is a sense of loyalty. I think the Catholic intuition for honoring our forefathers and our history, at least for me, it's easy to slip into isolation because I want to honor the past. And so I end up, rather than honoring the past, I end up mistakenly trying to recreate it. Right. Yeah. And the third posture then that, that Father... Yeah, there's got to be a better way, yeah, Jen. Right. Come on, don't leave <laughs> know, us right? here. Right. Uh, is engagement. Okay. Um, and so I think that as we think about what that means, it really means, I think, living in the tension that exists mm-hmm. between the fact that, yeah, the cultural values are not at all what Christ is calling us to to live and who he's calling us to be. They're not actually going to to make for real happiness, <laughs> you know, the fulfillment right. of all of our desires as we understand that as Christians, which is rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ and a living as his disciples. So that's directly in contrast with what our culture is telling us is going to make us mm-hmm. happy. And yet we have to be able to engage with the dialogue culturally, as well as people mm-hmm. who have a different worldview than we do, if the gospel is going to spread and we're not going to just become kind of an insular and completely irrelevant mm-hmm. um, group of people. Well, you know, it's interesting as you talk about this, I was drawn immediately back as you talk about like accommodation and the the errors of that. You know, having spent so many years in, in college ministry, Many of the college ministries, I would say, they embraced cultural values and they fell into the accommodation trap. And you know what was fascinating about it? They were the first ones to die. Mm-hmm. I think about the ministries on campus at the University of Nebraska. There was no difference between their cultural ideals and, and those of the culture at large. They were the first ones to die, the first ones to close. I mean, we we bought their building and we took out the the beautiful organ and 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 actually yeah, put it in our own because they just closed up shop. Nobody was there anymore. Nobody was there to lead. They had no vocations for the chaplaincy. And it was interesting. And there, there was that wasn't just one. There was a repeated pattern of ministry after ministry who, when they accommodated themselves, rather than being a source of life, rather than being attractive, they were the first ones to die. Yeah, the power's lost. Because right. the message has been watered down. Right. But I think I think as it relates, though, to those of us who want to be faithful, that tendency to want to isolate. I was thinking about this and just a personal story, which is a little bit silly, but I think that it kind of illustrates what this maybe looks like. This past year on Halloween, I had put some candy out for trick-or-treaters, and I was just kind of watching outside, and I noticed that my neighbors were arranging the driveway to have a bonfire. And they mm. had a you know fire pit there, and they said to me, you know, feel free to come over if you'd like to join us. And so it got dark, and I was like, well, you know, I'll just go sit out there mm-hmm. with them. Just knowing that, like, if I actually want to engage my neighbors, I have to build friendships with them mm. at a basic human level. If I want to share the gospel with them, I have to have a relationship with them. And so I, I went out and I sat with them, and I had noticed a little bit earlier in the evening that one of the other neighbors, who I happen to know is very mm. faithfully Catholic, uh, had put a sign out basically discouraging trick-or-treaters from coming because it was very clear on the sign that he did not agree with Halloween and he did not agree with kind of the cultural celebration of that. And I would just say personally, like Halloween is not my favorite holiday. I don't really like the Was this one of those, we don't believe in witches, you shouldn't either. I'll pray for your soul tomorrow and also, (laughs) yeah, okay, great. Yeah, yeah, that type of thing, totally. No candy Um, here. Yeah, right. Do you want to join my church? (laughs) Right, (laughs) No. And so, so I went and I sat out with my other neighbors and they just, they were commenting on this sign and they had no clue why someone would even take that, that perspective or approach. And I was just thinking to myself, I actually understand where he's coming from. And yet I can't have that same, you know, I may have to, to allow myself to sit through some conversation that I don't want to (laughs) hear or some, some, you know, uh, Mm. some things that are a little bit difficult for me in order to engage people so that I can hopefully witness to them the love of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. 
well, I, I mean, I appreciate, right, this is like accommodation, isolation, engagement all in one. I, I have similar stories. I won't sh- share the name, but I was blessed to walk with a number of different people. But I think about a friend who was, you know, very rough around the edges. You know, I'm going to spoil the story like this. This is how it ends. This person is now an unbelievably fruitful leader in the church, holds a really important diocesan position, not in the Archdiocese of Omaha, extremely, extremely fruitful ministry. And I remember when this person's conversion was very fresh and they were devouring the catechism and living with their girlfriend at the same time. And my ability to just kind of patiently enter into conversation and maintain a a friendship and to challenge and ask hard questions. I remember, you know, the the challenge of being able to, to talk about that, like, that messiness of like the conversation and the life was actually very fruitful, but it was, I could have easily, could have easily avoided that. I could have easily pretended like it didn't matter. And when the time was right, going there in the conversation wasn't easy, but it just, yeah, an example in my own life of trying to find that middle way of engagement. Yeah. Okay. So we got two strategies here, right? We ha- we have first off, just embrace it. Second, you know, you got into the dangers of an apostolic age. What else? What what's what else what else do we do here to begin to to live fruitfully in an apostolic age? Yeah. So I, I think that we, we already touched on this, but to expect that we need our lay people to be holy, <laughs> to right. be able to witness to the world. And I think that what's important maybe to to distinguish is that it's appropriate in an apostolic mm. age to have higher standards of living the gospel for those who are committed Christians, hmm. but more patience and mercy with those who are outside. Wait, okay, say, say, say that again. Yeah. So it is appropriate in an apostolic age to have higher standards for those who are committed Christians and really understand the gospel message. They, they have a relationship right. with Jesus. They're living as his disciples. But for those maybe even Catholics who've never had that deeper encounter with Christ, who don't really know what it looks like to live as, as disciples, to have more patience and mercy and, you know, the tendency that we might have to judge harshly and to act and react harshly yeah. needs to be tempered. Yeah. Well, two things are exploding in my mind as you say about this. One, I think about Carrie Newhoff, favorite author and podcaster that we often listen to, says, why do Christians expect non-Christians to act like Christians? I mean, if it's true that we now live in an age where people are not, and again, just look at the numbers and the data, people are not Christian, why would, he, why would we expect them to think like Christians and to live like Christians? I mean, I think that's a vestige, whether we use the terms or not, it's a vestige as we we still imagine that we're living in an age of Christendom. So I, so I think that's that's just like coming front and center in my mind. And I also think you sound a lot like St. Paul, maybe not so much in your accent, right. as uh, right. St. Paul is extremely hard on Christian hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so, you know, as he talks about, cast this member out, let them be ex- excommunicated and deliver them over to Satan. And you're like, holy cow. And he seems just radically harsh radically high standard um, trying to avoid hypocrisy for those who've who've embraced the gospel. And yet he seems scandalously lax to those who have yet to meet Christ. Like Paul's really, it's somewhat disorienting unless you recognize, oh, he's living in an apostolic age where you cannot assume a, a, a friendly response to Christian worldview and values that that has to be won by uh, a life transformed by Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, Jesus himself, his the way he spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders right. was completely different than how he engaged those who were on the outside. Yeah. So, okay, good. What else? Yeah. So I think another thing that's really going to be important in this new apostolic age is that we learn to speak the language of the culture that we're in. Mm. Um, is this like, so right during COVID-19, I believe you learned Portuguese, right? Just as a, as a <laughs> hobby. No, oh my gosh. Yeah. No, languages are not my forte. So uh, I only wish, <laughs> but no, what I mean is that we need to understand the worldview uh. of the people we're engaging. So first and foremost, the worldview of most of the people living in our culture is no longer Christian. Yeah. So 
if someone is has grown up, you know, not in a family where they mm-hmm. read the Bible and they prayed, we see that that people don't even have literacy, basic literacy with gospel stories anymore. Mm-hmm. We can't assume that in the same way that um, we maybe used to be able to. Right. So um, when you say language, you're really talking about culture and worldview. Yeah. Jen, talk a little bit about this. You you mentioned this as we were kind of thinking through and preparing this. There, there's been a lot in the news lately about Catholics' lack of belief in the Eucharist, right? And that, and that, you know, Catholics, a shocking percentage, maybe maybe 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And you had a kind of a provocative theory as to what's really going on there, that it's not simply a gap in information. Yeah, no, I think that most of the time when um, someone has a different worldview than we do, we think that the remedy is to just tell them what the teaching is. <laughs> This is what the church teaches, and then they'll understand. Mm. And um, maybe just say it louder. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, more times. But that's not going to resonate. We're going to completely miss the boat, completely miss the mark, if we don't understand that people don't have a worldview that is is sacramental anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have been so influenced by a scientific, materialistic worldview that when you tell somebody oh, this, what looks like a piece of bread is actually really Jesus Christ. <laughs> They're going to go, well, that makes no sense at all. Because hmm. you're saying it's not that they don't know that they've never heard. Legitimately, there are many Catholics because of the breakdown in catechesis who have never heard. So, right. right. I mean, for sure. Big fan of catechesis here. But you're saying they need to know more than here. They need they need a new set of eyes, mm-hmm. that, right? They, they need a worldview that can see beyond seeing. Right. Um, that makes sense to me. But you, what I find amazing is at the same time that we live in a, a culture that is dominated by kind of a very materialistic, if I can see it, touch it, measurement, then it's real. And if not, it's BS. At the same time, I think there's something in our hearts and our imaginations that crave something mysterious, something, you know, power that can't be seen. And I would just point to the phenomenon of Harry Potter and Star Wars and so many of these kind of cultural, mythical, magical world, pick your favorite, you know, pick your favorite one, that we crave that. And so it, I don't think we're actually, it, it's not as though the human heart doesn't desire this. It's just that we have to remember we're speaking a foreign language if we just try and fill in the information without providing that worldview. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of, quite honestly, learning that we have as Christians to fully understand the worldview of of our secular culture, and to know how to enter into that more effectively. Because I think that our our dominant mode of operating in a Christendom era is just catechesis, (laughs) right? Right, because it it is, there is a common language and there is a common culture. Right, Um, right. Yeah, and and so it's enough to just teach someone (laughs) when all they're expected to do is is what their parents have always done. (laughs) And, you know, the parents before them have always done when this is just the way it's always always kind of been, which I think leads to another part of that learning to speak the language that and this is something that Pope Francis has just reiterated over and over and over again, that the kerygma, which is kind of the core gospel message, mm-hmm. the basic message of Christianity, which you see articulated over and over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles right. in, various, yeah. in various ways, that that has to come to the forefront as people don't have this Christian worldview we have to kind of boil it down and start with what is most basic and essential and repeat that over and over and over mm-hmm. again in different ways and in different contexts with clarity and with conviction. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I've shared this before in other formats, but as a missionary, I loved catechesis and I was really into that, but I was blessed to read some of the documents, Vatican II, the writings of John Paul II, others where it became clear to me that I wasn't really evangelizing. Even though my business card said missionary and I wanted to say that I was evangelizing, all I was doing was catechesis. And I was not actually talking about Jesus. I wasn't really talking about the gospel, right? Like that he's here and has offered you eternal life. And you actually kind of need it because you're headed to hell without it, right? I mean, right. Just, I didn't actually say that because it, well, because I had this intuition, like I actually knew that was weird. I knew that was 
too countercultural. And I wanted to be a good, faithful missionary, but I didn't want to be weird. And I was just blessed to be forced to wrestle with that in the context of some of the church documents. And I was blessed to have a lot of missionary friends who did preach the gospel clearly and directly and with passion. And they would call people to conversion, not unlike St. Paul and the early missionaries of the apostolic era. And they saw fruit that made me jealous. And with, you know, competition in my top five, the Lord mm-hmm. used that to really change and shift my habits as a missionary. And I'm so grateful for it because the joy of seeing people's lives changed as you lead with the core message of the gospel. I mean, it's the greatest. I think it's why Pope Francis calls, calls his exhortation the joy of the gospel, because there's something about beginning to share the gospel that brings back the joy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I love also in um, Joy of the Gospel that Pope Francis says that catechesis is really only an unpacking of, of the, the core gospel message. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that that's really important as we think about learning to speak the language, that all of our catechesis is really wrapped in this very evangelical, evangelistic message. Okay. So one more, Jen. Who is the uh, kind of final key to living fruitfully in an apostolic age? Yeah. Well, I think we can look back to Pope Paul VI, who was the one who said that the Holy Spirit is the primary agent of evangelization. And so reliance on the Holy Spirit, who is eminently faithful and creative, (laughs) uh, is going to be absolutely essential. You know, you see in the the Acts of the Apostles, right after Pentecost, Mm -hmm. the preaching and the going out and the massive conversions. I agree. But on a really practical level, I don't think we want to do this. I I know I don't. There's a part because, I mean, here's the deal. Like, whoa, 3,000 conversions in one day. Can you imagine being the DRE or the catechist responsible for them? Like, oh, crap. Yeah, like, or the church lady, right? You know, God bless you, whoever you are, who had to like figure out all the casseroles and food for all those folks for the reception. Like the Holy Spirit's creativity is kind of annoying because things get messy. And like, if you have baby Christians around, there are huge gaps in formation. So they love Jesus, but there's all sorts of messy, stupid, oh, that's actually, hey, let's go to chapter 18 now. There's some things that Jesus says about, you know, and the, like there's huge gaps in personal formation that it's just, it's messy, it's ugly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some, sometimes it's, it's ugly. And the, the person in me that likes neatness and order Oh my gosh, I would much rather play with something dead or sterile because, you know, it's not as messy. Oh yeah, that totally resonates with me because I'm very orderly and uh, very uncomfortable when things are messy and not put in their place. Hmm. But I think what I recognize and what I see as I, I wrestle with that myself is that if the church is going to grow and if she's going to be mm-hmm. a living embodiment of the person of Jesus Christ in our world, then we have to be open to that kind of messiness. And and I think that it, what's most challenging is for those in leadership. Right. Because if you tend to see something that's maybe not totally faithful to church teaching, or it's not put in order, and, and you see people kind of, you know, spilling out of the boundaries of what we, we think is normally okay mm-hmm. uh, in our, our parishes and in our schools and various other places. In other words, messy. Right. We're, we're going to have to be careful not to just completely shut that down or squelch that right. immediately. Yeah, I'd actually go the other way. When you find something that's messy, if at the same time it's fruitful, lives are being changed, well, then lean in there. Give the best of your resources and time and pastoring counsel to places where there's life and fruit. And it's not that we can't bring a little bit of order to the mess, but we don't want to bring so much order that we kill it and choke it off. Absolutely. I mean, really, if you think about it, it's far better to deal with those who are overzealous than with those who are skeptical and apathetic. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to suggest some homework here. Uh, super practical for those of you, if you are in a family, if you are a ministry leader, if you are, you know, pick your role. If you're just a faithful disciple and you feel the strain of being in, you know, of now living in a, in a change of, of age, get two, two pieces of homework for you. Number one, no more blaming. No more, well, it's the fault of consumerism, or if our culture wasn't so focused on sports, or if the, you know, materialism, whatever, like, we got to own it, we got to embrace it, the Lord has put us here for a particular time, and 
no more blaming the isms or anything else. Let's own it and take responsibility for our commission to preach the gospel and to live as a witness. And let's not look at the decay of our culture and our precious institutions and begin to blame the isms. Let's like jump right into being the remedy. So no complaining. Number two, reread Paul's letters. There's admittedly some hard things in there, but Paul is the apostle of the apostolic age par excellence. And as we wrestle in that, with that, or the Acts of the Apostles, both of those give us a, a just a beautiful picture of uh, it's not a perfect mirror, but a little bit of an echo of our of our day and age. So, Jen, any kind of closing thoughts here? Yeah, I think that as we think about what lies before us, I think that we just have to commit ourselves to continuing to learn, to be mm. ongoing learners who are open and willing to shift <laughs> in whatever way we need to. It's not a comfortable time to be living in. And believe me, I am built for stability. <laughs> I would love to mm-hmm. be able um, to just say that all of my personal resources and where I'm at is is where I could stay. But I think we have to really be ready to embrace the challenge of continuing to learn, continuing to grow, pushing ourselves beyond what's comfortable in order to really learn what it's like to live in this time and to be open to what the Lord is calling us to do. Beautiful. Towards that end, we referenced two resources. Father uh, Mallon's new book, Divine Renovation Beyond the Parish. We referenced the article from First Things on pastoral strategies for an apostolic age. We'll put both of those in the show notes. Again, if you would like to get the show notes, equip.archomaha.org. You can subscribe to the blog and find all the resources there. Again, if you search EquipCast on your preferred podcasting platform, EquipCast is all one word. You can find us there. Next week, Andy Deka from the Office of Evangelization and Catechesis is going to be talking about conversion engines. That's the kind of inside lingo here for the ministries that foster that initial encounter with Jesus. So we're going to talk about how do you find the right one for your parish, because they're not all a one-size-fits-all, and some of the pitfalls uh, to avoid when you're thinking about intentionally beginning to foster ministries that help facilitate that conversion for people. So thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.